good to see you all here this morning. We are continuing this series on what it means for the people of God to, to be renewed and to experience renewal of, of the Holy Spirit and a, and a vibrancy in our faith. And so this sermon today is, is kind of um, catching a few themes that we've started, the first one being um, the importance of addressing sin in our own lives and in the, and in the lives of, of, of the community. Um, and last week we st- looked at um, a series of a set of qualities that are needed by the people of God in order to, in order to pursue and experience renewal. So we're looking at some qualities today. The quality that we're looking at is confronting sin, and next week we're going to look at the importance of confessing sin. And so we've got a, several threads that are coming together here, and and as we look at this. Um, this quality of confessing sin, um, it, it really it brought to mind earlier this week as I was preparing uh, a story that came out of a book that I've recently read. Micah Spiegel recommended a, a book called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters um, to Anna and I a couple weeks ago. And uh, it's written by a, a pediatrician. Her first name is Meg. I can't remember her last name at this point, but it's Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. And um, over the years, she's been in practice for several decades, she has the opportunity to meet with a lot of young women, and, and she tells the story, um, and it's not an isolated story, uh, which is unfortunate, but she tells the story of this, of this teenage gal who came into her office and, and severely struggling with depression and anxiety, and um, met with her, her mother came in with her, and over the, over the time that they spent with her, um, this, this young gal basically explained that um, she had been spending time with a person who was her best friend, a young man, she, that she called her best friend, and they got together to study. But in the, in the course of that time studying, her best friend, this young man, uh, forced himself on her and assaulted her sexually. And she came home, and she came home and told her parents. And her dad said... Well, boys will be boys, and he went off to play golf. And it devastated, it devastated his daughter. And so she had the devastation of the event of the sexual assault and the devastation of of her father, the authority in her life, the man who had been given the role to protect and defend and vindicate her, um, didn't do his job. It left her feeling disgraced, unloved, undefended, unworthy. It communicated to her that authorities were not reliable. It gave her no sense of justice, no sense of closure, and it changed her expectation of boys and of men. It led to long-lasting depression, confusion, helplessness, and anxiety. Psychiatrists and psychologists believe that the response of a, of a father uh, when confronted with the sexual assault of his daughter, uh, the response of the father is as significant as the event of the sexual assault itself in terms of how that daughter is going to respond at that point. This young woman needed 18 months of ongoing help and therapy and support um, and it is, the, the doctor's point of view is that that time would have been greatly reduced, um, almost even to immediately, if her father had confronted 
the young man who had assaulted his daughter. Sin needs to be confronted. Now, that's obviously um, a pretty substantial and harrowing and tragic story. But she said, you know, unfortunately, she has heard that story hundreds of times in her practice. And not all, not all sin seems to have that um, end, that significance of an effect. But as John Owen said, John Owen was a, a Puritan that wrote substantially on the issue of sin and uh, one of the more well-known ones. And he says, eventually small sins lead to magnificent, huge sins that bring great death and destruction. So I want to start out today by, by asking the question, what is sin? It's not a real strong, popular, contemporary term. Um, and so I want to, you know, when we, when I, the second sermon, I think we looked at sin and what it was, and, and we uh, relied on a definition of sin that said that sin is essentially um, the, the, the way that things aren't supposed to be. It is, it is, a, it is a, a, an existence of, of things, anything within the context of our lives that is different and opposed to what God originally planned. I want to look at Augustine today and how he thought of sin. So Augustine was the Bishop of Hippo in the middle 300s, just a few centuries after Christ. He thought of sin as being disordered loves, disordered affections, um, loving something other than God, more supremely than God. And he, he argues that we, we, are, we, we give our affections and our loves to things that we believe are going to essentially save us or provide uh, the comfort or the satisfaction or the peace that we're looking for. And sins are those, are those efforts that we engage where we are giving our affections to something that ultimately really isn't going to provide what we're looking for. He says, wherever the soul of man turns, unless towards God, it cleaves to sorrow. Even though the things outside God and outside itself to which it cleaves may be things of beauty. For these lovely things would be nothing at all unless they were from him. And so this first statement, he says, it's this, whenever we turn to anything as, as a deep affection, something that we are pursuing that is going to bring the satisfaction and peace and contentment that we're looking for, if it is not of God, even if it, could, even if it is the, the most beautiful and wondrous things, if it is not God, it will eventually be cleaving on and holding on to sorrow. Things that they will bring destruction into our lives. And he argues that this is the case because all of the things outside of God eventually come to an end. Even the good and beautiful things that God creates, they, they come to an end. They're not able to provide the long-enduring source of strength and salvation that we're looking for. And so he, he has this prayer. He says, in all such things, things that God has created that are, that are beautiful and satisfying, in all such things, let my soul praise you, O God, creator of all things, but let it not cleave too close in love to them through the senses of the body. For they go their way and are no more, and they rend 
the soul or tear apart the soul with desires that can destroy it. For it longs to be one with the thing it loves and to repose in them. But in them is no place of repose because they do not abide, they do not endure, they pass. And who can follow them with any bodily sense? Or who can grasp them firm even while they are still here? Everything that God has created that is beautiful and that we enjoy can become objects of our affection. More so than God is the object of our affection. This is why in the Old Testament, the first commandment given to the nation of Israel was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you can do that, all of the rest of the commandments come easily. Because our, our hearts are drawn to things that we believe are going to save us. And what, what Augustine found, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, what we find is that the things that we long for, things that God has created, uh, ultimately do not satisfy. And that what, that's what leads to our emotional tearing apart. The, tearing up the desires that just tear us apart. Well, John Owen says there are two types of disordered affections or disordered loves. There are, the, first of all, the self-gratifying pleasures that we would normally see in the list of classical sins. Drunkenness, adultery, gluttony, sexual immorality, cruelty, lying, stealing, etc. All of the things that we generally would affirm are evil. But then he also says there are the types of things, and this would be consistent with where Augustine is coming from. Uh, we have an inordinate affection for good things, personal well-being, our family, work, etc. But even in the first list, even in the first list, drunkenness, for example, drunkenness is the, the, the overloving of a good thing that God has created. The scriptures are clear. God has created uh, the fruit of the vine to make the hearts of men happy but condemns drunkenness. So even in the first list of the things that we would typically consider evil, those things at the core are, are perversions of things that God has given humanity to be good. So that's what sin is. Sin is, is the, the longing and loving, the longing for and the loving of things to provide a sense of peace and a sense of wholeness, a sense of contentment and satisfaction, a sense of being complete. What the, what the New Testament is going to call an experience of righteousness. When we pursue that outside of God, that's what sin is. That's what sin is. So let's look at Nehemiah here. So we're, look, we're at chapter 13. Let me set the context a little bit. So Nehemiah... Upon finding out that Jerusalem's walls were destroyed and that, Israel, that Jerusalem was in a place of shame, he was the cupbearer to the king of, 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 of Medo-Persia at the time. Actually, a Babylon, then it became Medo-Persia. He, he was, he was cupbearer, very high position, very comfortable position, very wealthy position, very influential. Um, and he found out that Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem, was not doing well. And he wanted to go back to participate in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so he led a coalition of people, thousands of people, back to, back to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls. And was there for some time. It was there for some years. 
But the king wanted him back. The king wanted him back to serve as cupbearer, which was kind of a royal position. It was like a cabinet position or vice president. And so he left. He left Jerusalem after rebuilding the walls, after setting some things in place that would ensure Jerusalem and its people would be in a good spot. So he left. He left. And he goes back. He goes back after some time. Doesn't really say, but it says I, he left, and in the 32nd year, he came back. He started in the 20th year, so a period of about 12 years from when he began. He's back here, and he, he's making these observations, and he sees Israel falling apart. He sees Israel going back to the, old, the same practices that led to their exile out of Jerusalem in the first place, that led to the judgment of God coming on them in the first place. So the first one he looks at is Sabbath-breaking. Sabbath-breaking. And it is this specific law that God had given the nation of Israel that they violated that in the book of Jeremiah, God says, this is why I'm exiling you to Babylon for 70 years. You have not honored me in in the holding to the Sabbath. Sabbath was... The seventh day of the week, they were not to work. They were not to cultivate their fields. They were not to harvest. Okay? They were not to, to work with their livestock. They were to rest. They were to rest. So what was the specific sin that Israel committed? Well, he saw them, he saw them working seven days a week. Sunday through Saturday, working every single day. And we could say, well, what is the big deal about that? What is the big sin? Why would God judge Israel for working seven days a week? Well, the sin, that's, that's the expression of sin. The heart of it was a disbelief that God would provide for them. They did not believe that God would care for them, and so they took it upon themselves to make sure that they would be provided for. We don't trust that God is going to care for us, so we're going to do everything that we can to ensure our food security. And so they didn't rest the seventh day. And so it wasn't just the fact that they were working. It was the the disbelief in God's love and care for them. We don't trust that God will take care of us, We're going to have to take care of ourselves. And that expression of disbelief then put them into a mindset where we're going to have to take care of ourselves. And what does that then lead to? If you work seven days a week, you can do that for a while. You do that month after month, year after year. You begin to feel in the effects of your own body. You begin to see the effects in your family and in your relationships those things all start taking second, the primary, those things begin taking backseat to your work, to the concern that you're not going to be provided for. And people begin to put their identities in their work. They begin to love their work. Maybe you're like this. And if you're not like this, maybe you know people like this. That's the sin. And it begins to tear us apart. And it begins with the belief that God is not going to care for us. Second thing he addressed intermarriage. Well, what was the sin? The sin was uniting in marriage with someone outside of the people of Israel and outside of faith in God. Now, back then, Israel Israel wasn't just a 
a, a, a nation. It was a nation that God had selected, built from a family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as a family, they were called out to be a distinct people. And so it was a, it was a theocracy, as we would know it, and, and that would be the term that we would use in terms of, as a nation, they honored and worshiped God. And if they were to marry people from other nations, they, that meant that they were going to be marrying people that worshipped and served other gods. And so it was, so, so the sin is, is violating this commandment that God had given them, do not marry somebody else from another nation, because they will pull you to their gods. And it is, it, it, and it's, at its heart, it is the disbelief in God's flourishing of individuals, in God's flourishing of family, in God's flourishing of a people through families and nations that understand who the source of life is. See, if, if sin is, if sin and, and false and worshiping false gods is a disordering of our loves and affections that pull us towards things that destroy, to serve and worship other gods means to eventually get into a place where you're bringing destruction. And the other nations around Israel at the time didn't just worship other gods, they worshiped other gods that called them to animal, excuse me, not animal sacrifice, it did involve animal sacrifices, but it was the sacrifices of their children. They would give birth to children and sacrifice those children to their false gods. And this is what the other nations did. And God didn't want his people to be a people that sacrificed their children on, on altars or in fire to false gods. Because that was not what God perceived as the flourishing of families and humanity and all sorts of other sins related to family life and what it meant to flourish as a community. So Israel rejected what God understood to be family life and community life and a national life on what, on what God would consider human flourishing. And oftentimes in the context of, of marriage and relationships, we just, we just see the, the immediate gratification that comes from somebody that we can love and somebody that loves us, and we don't think about the broader picture, and this is what Israel, doing, Israel was doing. Now, is it a sin now? It's a lot different now, okay? The people of God are not just a, an ethnic group. The people of God are not a nation. We don't have the same types of things. But it is similar in that uh, we can choose to unite ourselves with or to love someone that will ultimately pull us into a direction that would not be worshiping God, leading to fragmentation of, of families and long-term generational unity. The Levitical priesthood, the third sin that Nehemiah addresses. So what they did... Nehemiah observed there, so the, the, the priests were a tribe out of the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel was 12 tribes, based upon the 12 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob. So the Levites, the Levites were the, the tribe that was given the responsibility to serve as priests. Now priests in Israel are those people that would would do the sacrifices, they would make the, the prayers, they would, they would go between uh, the nation and God. And the, the, there was one priest out of the, the tribe of the Levites from the family of Aaron 
that would once a year go into the, the, the tent, the Holy of Holies, and make atonement for the entire nation. Okay, now, that was a specific called out people based upon uh, the Levites' efforts and commitment to God when all of the other tribes uh, worshipped the golden calf when Moses didn't come down from the mountain. And Moses, and the tri- Moses was a Levite, and Moses and the tribe of, of Levi s- did not worship the golden calf, and they, they rallied around Moses, and through them God brought judgment upon the other tribes for their worshiping of a false god. And so God had called the Levites to be the mediatory people. And so what happened is that the, some of the Levites allowed their, their children, which would mean the future priests, the future people who would serve to be the mediatory effort between them and God, they were marrying outside of, not just outside of the tribe of Levites, but they were marrying foreigners. In fact, what, and what it brings out here is there, there were several foreigners non-Israelites that had lived in the area of Jerusalem and that were the source of conflict and were actually uh, coming against Nehemiah and the efforts with swords and they were fighting. They did not want Jerusalem to be finished. They did not want the walls to be finished. They were enemies of Nehemiah. And so one of these enemies, his name was Sanballat, not an Israelite. Sanballat married off one of his kids to one of the kids of the Levites. And it, it tainted the Levitical priesthood. This is what Nehemiah has such strong reaction to. So what is the sin? Well, the sin is, is disregarding the commandment that God gave. The origin of the sin is a disbelief in God's provision of a worthy substitute on our behalf. See, God provides the provision through which our sins are forgiven. God provides um, the atonement. We cannot save ourselves, is the idea. And what Israel was saying is, sin is no big deal. We can put anybody in the priesthood that we want. And it's, it's, this, it's this belief that we can save ourselves. It's this belief that we can bring what is needed for us to find satisfaction and abiding happiness and joy and fulfillment and completion and contentment in our lives. And see, we do the same thing now. This is really the definition of what it means to have a disordered affection or a disordered love. We replace, we replace Jesus Christ. We replace God with something else that we think is equally worthy or capable of bringing an abiding fulfillment, of saving us, saving us from suffering here on earth, saving us from eternal suffering. And so we saw these three sins here, and we see Nehemiah's confrontation. What did Nehemiah do to to confront? And I think there's a few things here that we need to think about as we think about confronting sin, confronting sin. The first thing we need to see is that um, we are all in a role. 
Nehemiah's role in the nation of Israel. Now, he, at, for a time, he was the governor of Jerusalem. It was his ultimate responsibility to provide and pr- to, to, to protect Israel from foreign gods, from violence, and, he, and he, he played that role. He's left and he's come back, but he still has that role. He's not the official governor, but, be, but he was. And he's in a place of responsibility. And if we think about the teachings of the New Testament that we've pretty thoroughly covered in the books of Colossians and Ephesians and Galatians, we are all called to, book of James, we are all called to play a role of speaking the truth to one another in love. It's not just the responsibility of the pastors or of the elders. The New Testament gives the responsibility of confronting sin on every single person in the church. We all have the responsibility to go to one another and say, hey, this is wrong and it's leading to your destruction, it's leading to your family's destruction, it's leading to our destruction as a church. Stop doing it. Now, um, you may see Nehemiah here. (laughs) He makes some threats. I'm going to lay hands on you. He says he had to beat some people and pull their hair out. Okay, now, when the New Testament says to speak the truth in love and to confront, um, beating them and pulling their hair out does not fit under the category of speaking the truth in love. We're not called to the same means that Nehemiah employed. And the text doesn't say that Nehemiah did the right thing. There were, there were stipulations on how to deal with people in the Old Testament. And some of them were harsher than this. Okay, so when somebody says, hey, I'm going to go Old Testament on you, or if you're watching, um, oh, what's that show with Samuel Jackson? Oh. <laughs> Pulp Fiction, where he quotes Old Testament prophets before, you know, getting rid of somebody. He's great. He, he's in the latest uh, Captain Marvel movie. All right, that's what it means to go Old Testament. There's going New Testament, and going New Testament is fundamentally different. I'll get to that later. Motivations. What were, what were Nehemiah's motivations? There's three things you see. Nehemiah wanted to honor God. He wanted to honor God and knew that committing these sins as a nation would bring dishonor to the name of God. It wasn't the only thing. He also knew that it was for the welfare of Israel. It was for the welfare of Israel that he needed to confront. He said, listen, even King Solomon, the greatest king who has ever lived on the face of the planet, could not engage these sins without it destroying his own family and bringing judgment upon the nation. He married hundreds of women, and they all, they, well, I shouldn't say they all, they led him astray to worship other gods. And it, and it brought envy and corruption into his family, and it brought the judgment of God upon to them as a, as a nation. He said, listen, you're not as great as Solomon. What makes you think you can get away with this? This is going to lead to your destruction and our destruction as a people. And the third thing, he also saw it as consistent with his own personal well-being. And I like how these, things, these three things work together. Several times throughout this last chapter, we didn't even read all of them. He says, God, please remember me 
for good. I gave, he, in, the, in the portion where he says that out of his own expense, he, he provided food, daily food for like 150 people. And he listed it. Then he says, God, please remember me for all the sacrifices I've made. Please remember me, God, because I've tried to protect your name. I've tried to protect your people. He sees it, he sees it as good for him. See, because if he's sitting there in a place of responsibility, and this should weigh on all of us, if we see somebody in sin and don't say anything about it, do you know that, that you're, you're going to be partially responsible for that? If, you're in your, if in your conscience you know that something needs to be done, some love and correction needs to be administered to, to another brother or sister in the Lord, and you don't do anything about it, you're responsible for that. But if you, if you go and you make the effort to love and confront, James says you'll be blessed. It is, it is good for you. So doing the right thing and confronting, you should be motivated by honoring God. You want, you want honor to go to God. You want God to be pleased with your efforts. You want, you want his name to be held up. It's good for the community and it's good for you. The third thing, strategy. Now, he seems like he goes overboard a little bit, but, it, but he didn't immediately react. He said he warned the people who were violating the Sabbath. And then he went to the nobles or to the people in charge and says, listen, what are you guys doing here? I leave and I come back and you're letting everybody sell stuff and buy stuff on the Sabbath? It's not right. But then he took action. He took action. He didn't just walk away, he took some action. He stationed his own men at the gates, closed the gates up, and then he observed some, some merchants camping out just in case maybe somebody would come out of the walls, they could slide in through the gate and start selling stuff again. He said, listen, uh, do not camp out here again. If you do, I'm going to lay hands on you. And he said after a Sabbath or two, they stopped doing that. So he took some action to protect so he warned, he talked to the authorities, and then he took some action himself. And what power did he have to do this? Well, his power came from the fact that he was, he was governor and was still considered in a place of authority or a place of honor. He had the strength of the word of God. And the word of God gives us encouragement the Word of God gives us a sense of power. The, the Word of God gives us a sense of, hey, here is the right thing to do. You're called to do it. And when we read in the Scripture where we are called to speak the truth and love to one another and to participate in the Holy Spirit's work of cleansing the church that brings unity and a greater sense of love amongst ourselves, when we read that and we're aware of sin in our midst, it, it gives us a compulsion, and it activates the Holy Spirit even more inside of our hearts and minds because the Holy Spirit has been given to those who believe. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is moving, and he's wanting to create unity. He's wanting to create holiness. He's wanting, you know, Lawrence mentioned, we, we're longing to be a part of people, a, a people, a family that would know us for who we are. And if, if we can be who we are, in the midst of a people and find love and acceptance, then that creates a sense of, of love and unity and of commitment. And that's what we really are longing for and that's what we really need. That's what the Spirit's trying to do. 
But if, if, our, if our sin, which then leads to shame and guilt and fear, and then we don't want to expose ourselves to anybody, we become increasingly isolated, that's what sin does. It separates. And what Jesus is wanting to do through, being, through confronting sin is to bring us together and to cleanse us. And we need each other for that. So, we protect ourselves from sin from, by, through personal vid, vid, excuse me, vigilance. John Owen says that when our affections are applied to spiritual things, they will be prevalent and victorious against all, I mean, these are the Puritans, against all solicitations and allurements to draw them off to any other objects. Basically, here's what he's saying. We worship ourselves into sin, right? We start, we worship other things than God, believing that they're going to save us. He's saying we worship ourselves out, we begin to worship God and to set our minds on the things of God, and that gives us the ability to overcome sin. That's one of the strategies of the scriptures. The other one is we have a responsibility to confront. And I would even say that the, the, the scriptures put a very hefty weight on this. It's not like plan B. In fact, when you, when you read like the book of Ephesians, for example, um, you, you almost sense that there is a greater responsibility on the need for con confrontation and community um, than there is for us as individuals to kind of pull, pull ourselves along on our own. We're all called to personally follow Jesus and to put away sin, but the ability to do that seems to come more from our community life than our own ability by ourselves. So what keeps us from confronting? I think our own sin and guilt and oftentimes we don't confront because we're guilty of the same things. And we're like, who am I? Who am I to confront sin when I'm doing the same things or worse? Well, that's when we have to get our resources from who we are in Jesus Christ and say, you know what? I am in Christ, forgiven and washed and cleansed from sin. And Christ is calling me to engage and to confront. I can't think of myself as being who I really am. If I just see myself constantly under the, 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 the darkness of shame and guilt, I'm never going to have the courage or the strength to confront somebody else. So we, we, we have to see ourselves in Christ and as, and as vessels of the Holy Spirit's effort. And that also gives us the ability to overcome the fear of man that we have because when we confront people, we don't always get positive responses. We don't always get open arms and, and thanks and gratitude. That should be our response as Christians, but that's oftentimes not the response. Defensiveness often is, or rejection, or being accused of our own sin. And we don't want that. It makes us vulnerable, and so we run away. And again, we have to see that we are in Christ, and we are doing this on his behalf, and not in regard to the, to the responses that we get. Or we can, so we could not confront, or we could confront too harshly. And confronting too harshly is usually done because of arrogance. We think of ourselves too highly. We don't confront because we think of ourselves too lowly. We confront harshly because we think of ourselves too highly. We don't see our own sin. So why Jesus says, if you're going to confront effectively, you have to take the log out of your own eye before you can help somebody take the splinter out of theirs. Because being aware of our own sin gives us the ability to, to lovingly approach and humbly approach those that we are trying to confront. 
And oftentimes our arrogance and our harshness is a front, is a front to really deep insecurities inside ourselves. So again, to confront, we really have to press into who Jesus Christ has made us. Sinners, yes, but completely righteous, which puts us in a humble position to be able to speak the truth in love. And this will then lead to human flourishing, our own flourishing, the honoring of God, the honoring of the truth, the building up of ourselves as individuals and as families and as a church who are on mission in a world to heal it from its, its brokenness and its disordered loves. Let me pray.